Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. This is your host, as always, Rick Lee James, and tonight I am joined by a good friend who has been on the podcast a few times before. Uh, you have met him if you listen to the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast, and you know him very well. He is Ben DeBono, and he is on the Skype line tonight. Ben, I'm glad you could join me here on Voices in My Head. Well, I am glad to be here because if there's one topic we don't get into very much on the Sci-Fi Christian, it's horror movies. Because my uh, co-host, Matt, is not a fan of horror movies, so this is great. I I can uh, scratch my horror movie bug a little bit here with you today, Rick. Yeah, and you know what? I'm not, like, the the hugest fan of horror movies unless I feel like they're very smart. Like, I I don't really like just, like... uh, horror for the sake of just being horror i really like sure. it when they have something that uh, has a deeper message to it and i feel like that well i should tell the listeners what we're going to be doing we're, we're going to call this episode finding god in the exorcist and um the exorcist is one of those films that i think a lot of people are maybe scared to approach just because of the subject matter and it you know to be honest it is a scary movie it's a scary film and i think one of the reasons that we find it to be frightening and find it to be something that you know we almost want to steer people away from at times as believers is because we do believe in the reality of of some of these things you know that are talked about in the film and some of the reality of some of the spiritual warfare and i should say at the the front of this i'm not one of those christians that's you know looking under every rock and behind every doorway or you know to see that there must be a demon lurking there or something like that but I do think there is, uh, you know, in the sense that there is so much mystery in who God is, I think there are mysteries that, that we don't understand necessarily about um, spiritual warfare and, and some, some things that are going on um, maybe that we're not seeing all the time. Or maybe we're just overlooking it because of our Western eyes at times. And some of that they get into in the book as well as the movie. But all that is to say, I think we're going to have an interesting conversation on this on this topic tonight. And I wanted to have you specifically, because I know you, like me, have read the book and have seen the film. Uh, but also because uh, you're a Catholic and the author of this book is actually a Catholic. Yes, William Peter Blatty. Yep. Yeah. So let's let's maybe begin this tonight, and and I'm I'm gonna rely a little bit on Wikipedia here, just because that's the easy thing to do when it comes to talking about The Exorcist. Uh, but we'll start here and just see where our conversation takes us. Um, but I really am interested in your perspective tonight, being that you are a Catholic, and uh, in talking about some of the Catholic themes that maybe some of us Protestant people are always picking up on when we're seeing a film like this and maybe why those things are important when we're watching and having conversations like this. So, with that in mind, any any further thoughts before I give sort of a synopsis of what The Exorcist is for those who may or may not know? Well, I was just going to mention, you, you talked about people maybe are scared away uh, from the movie. It's one of those movies where 
there's almost a mythology that's grown up around it that is quite a bit different from the movie itself. And what's interesting about it is that I think that that mythology is both secular from secular and Christian sources. So on the secular sources, this is one of those where there were all the reports of people are fainting in the theaters and, and people are, you know, dying at screenings. And of course, none of that ever happened. And then on the religious side, famously had Billy Graham say that he thought the very film reels themselves were possessed that this movie had been imprinted on. So it's got like this larger mythology that I think then when you watch the movie, you really need to forget about that because A, you're not going to die by watching the movie. B, you're not going to be demonically possessed. C, but if you're watching it with all that stuff in mind, you're actually going to miss the substance of the movie. So uh, it's one where it's kind of funny as a fan that all that has grown up around it, but unfortunately I think it distracts from the real thing, which is a very powerful and, uh, uh, am I allowed to say compelling yeah. story? Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I, yes, the power of Christ, the power of Christ right? which is a line that I don't believe <laughs> yes. takes place in the book at all. After having read it recently, I'm like, wow, that's that scene that's so crucial in the film that, the power of Christ compels you line not even in the book, at least not that I could find as a honestly. Really? On, See, not, I never I haven't read it recently enough to be able to remember details I mean, like that. Yeah, I read it like three weeks ago and I was looking back through it tonight because as I read it it didn't even occur to me to think about that line, but when I rewatched the film I was like, I don't think that's in the book so I went back and looked and, and was on Kindle so I was actually doing a search for the phrase, couldn't find it anywhere. Huh. Uh, so it's kind of it's one of those things that uh, William Blatty, William Peter Blatty, he must have kind of written into the screenplay as you know maybe something that was part of the exorcism ceremony that he just hadn't thought of. But but well, let's be glad he did because it sounds awesome coming out of uh, Father Marin's mouth. Oh yeah, it does. There's a lot that that the actor uh, Max von Sydow does that I really enjoy. But I, it's interesting that you said that too about sort of the mythology that's come around it because I definitely was one of those kids when I was growing up that was, you know, cautioned away from things like this and especially cautioned away from like playing with Ouija boards or things like that because that might be how Well I think this movie cautions you away from playing with Ouija boards. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's (laughs) and I think I think this film is kind of where that all started. But but one interesting thing about this film and they even make a note of it in the book is um, is that they're saying it's it's not because of anything that this little girl has done that she has become possessed. It's not a sin issue. It's not because she played with Ouija boards. It's not because she did anything to let the occult in. Um, it was almost random, and, and the priests have this conversation in the book about that, and it's almost like they they make a point to say, oh, no, it's not. It's not those things. It's that evil is in the world, and it's targeting us, you know. And and we have to know how we're going to respond, you know. And when it when it comes our way, I just thought that was very interesting because the argument always is, you know, stay away from those things. And part of like the horror of the book and the movie is really that she wasn't inviting this in. It was just she's she's a victim. In, in in the book so i find that very interesting in those conversations where we have about you know being so cautious about not allowing satan into little cracks you may appear um it's it really is a fearful thing that 
um, you know, evil will happen where it happens, and but the fact is that through it all, God will be victorious over evil some way, no matter how it happens to you. But anyway, that's just an interesting point around the mythology of it, I guess, around Ouija boards and very various things. Not that I'm not recommending people go and play with Ouija boards. I, I don't really have a preference, I guess, on that. But anyway, are you still there? I am here, yeah. Okay, all right. I, I wanted to make sure, since we don't have nope. the camera on. Yes. All right, well, well, quickly, let's go ahead and get into the um, the exorcist sort of synopsis about what it is as a whole, and, and maybe we can get into some of the plot points together. But just in case you have never heard of The Exorcist for some reason, uh, The Exorcist, according to Wikipedia, is a 1973 American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin, uh, who also directed The French Connection, by the way, um, and is adapted by William Peter Blatty from his 1971 novel of the same name. It stars Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Max von Sydow, and Jason Miller. The book, inspired by the 1949 exorcism of Ronald Doe, deals with the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl and her mother's attempts to win back her child through an exorcism conducted by two priests. The, the adaptation is relatively faithful to the book, which itself has been commercially successful. So, um, the, the film, as it was uh, in like pre-production, actually experienced a lot of different things going wrong with it. Uh, there were directors, you, you may or may not know this, but did you know Stanley Kubrick was attached to this film at one point? I did not. Yeah, he was he was one of the film directors. Uh, also, I, I'm not as familiar with this one, but Arthur Penn, uh, they both turned it down, partially because incidents were happening. Um, one of them had a toddler son that, uh, or actually the toddler son of one of the main actors was hit by a motorcycle and was hospitalized. Um, and there were several claims that the, the set itself was cursed. So getting into some of that mythology surrounding the movie there. Um, so we had... I, I would have loved to have seen what would Stanley Kubrick's take ha have been on The Exorcist, you know? I didn't know that. Until yeah, you know, it, it's... On the one hand, I would love to see it. On the other hand, I, and I'm as big a Stanley Kubrick fan as there is, I, I'm glad he didn't do this one. I'll tell you why, because... William Friedkin is an agnostic, but if you read his quotes on the movie, and maybe you're going to get to some of this, he said, I had to become a believer for the purpose of making this movie. Not in the sense that he formally converted, but that mm -hmm. he couldn't make this movie, he, he says, from the perspective of an agnostic. He had to essentially buy into this in a real way, at least for the duration of making the film. And that's something I don't think Kubrick could have done. I think Kubrick had an intellectual distance um, to his agnosticism that would have prevented him from taking that step. And so it would have been an amazing film, I don't doubt, uh, but perhaps one that would have lacked some of the religious power uh, that the, the final product has. Well, that, that could very well be. So, um, yeah, it just, just was interesting. I didn't know that until recently, that that was one of the people that was involved with this. And um, it was actually originally when it was released, the film was only released into 26 theaters in the U.S., but then it became a major commercial success, and it was nominated for uh, 10 Academy Award nominations. Well, actually, yeah, it had 10 Academy Award nominations, but it won two uh, for Best Sound Mixing and Best Adapted Screenplay. And then it, uh, the entry also says that it became one of the highest grossing films in history, 
grossing over $441 million worldwide uh, in the aftermath of various re-releases. And it's the first horror film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. So on on that merit alone, um, I, I guess it's it's an interesting film to talk about. And, and because I, both of us have read the book at some point, it is very interesting because it, Peter Blatty wrote both of them. They are so similar. Um, I, I was shocked when I read the book recently. I was like, wow, I, I almost could have just skipped the book and just watched the movie again because it was right. it was so well done and i think that says a lot about the director and the screenwriter both that they were able to um to put on screen something that really was was so hard i'm sure to be able to convey so um if if people are not aware of of the plot of the movie let's let's get into the plot a little bit tonight and just see where our conversation takes us um the the plot in the book is just slightly different i don't remember the book and i know i read it recently but i've had a lot going on in my life but i don't remember the book actually taking place in iraq in the beginning um like it does in the film and there is this uh, like um I guess I'd call it a like a, an archaeological dig that's going on, and there's this amulet that's in the film that Max von Sydow's character, Father Marin, um, he finds this amulet, and it resembles a statue of Pazuzu, who is the demon um, whom Marin had defeated years ago. And turns out that this demon Pazuzu is the one that possesses this little girl that we're going to see later on. Um, so the amulet, as, as far as I can remember, does not appear in the book but it, it kind of plays uh, a key role in in the film throughout sort of the beginning and the end of the film and i think i haven't seen any of the sequels but uh, i feel like it, it that may be one of the reasons that it was put into the screenplay was they probably have something to do with that amulet in the other films i would imagine well uh, I, yeah i don't know about that I, I know that there is a pre i haven't watched any of the sequels either i know the last one is a prequel uh, but at the time when the movie and book were made, and none of that existed, uh, part of why I haven't watched any of the, the sequels, I actually own them all, because I bought the box set off Amazon for like 20 bucks a, a year or two ago. Uh, but the, I've heard the second one's just so terrible, I haven't been able to bring myself to sully the exorcist of my mind. But I think it's more just the thematic value of that we understand, and I love that prologue, and I love that it, it's gets so much across without dialogue but you, you understand from watching that this is not father Marin's first rodeo mm-hmm. and then you also understand that he gets this as a sign that something is coming and i love that kind of long shot of him standing on the pile of rocks yeah. in front of the idol and it's just okay there's a showdown coming and then we don't see him again until the very end of the movie uh, and it, it really sets the stage in a spectacular way. Um, so as far as I know, there wasn't anything else, unless Peter Blatty had, had some stuff in mind, but nothing else had been published at the time uh, the movie was out, uh, to the best of my knowledge. So I think it was more just a thematic, uh, okay, the showdown is coming yeah. type of moment. Well, it's and it's a good moment, and and the movie I would say is is probably kind of slow by today's standards, but I I like. I like the pace of it actually because it doesn't just throw you right into it. it it really does make you take time and if I could say it's it's almost a film that makes you slow down and pause and reflect I know we don't usually think of that but most of the like 
if we're going to call it action of this film, really doesn't take place till the end of the movie. Um, we're 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 building and building throughout this film, and there's so much um, about faith and about doubt, and there's so much about um, really about how how doubt and and wondering if God is there um, is is even a part of mature faith that that it's almost like something that a mature faith has to go to as if um, it's it's part of the path that we all have to tread down at some point or another if we're going to continue growing and I love how those uh, themes come back again and again but anyway so so the movie starts out and, and as you said with Max von Sydow as this person who um, really is the seasoned priest who has has been around and has seen some things uh, that would probably turn your hair white or unless you're like me um, make you grow hair back or something i don't know because i don't have hair to turn white but uh something well, in that. you know that's the interesting thing about max von Sydow's career is if you i don't know if you've seen any ingmar bergman like seventh seal or anything that he was in in the 60s but it's like something turned his hair white because all his movies through the 60s and i've watched quite a few of them uh, he looks like he's about 30 35 and then suddenly uh, he looks like he's about 70 in this movie, and it feels like he's been 70 in, for the next 40 years, ever since he looks the same age in Force Awakens as he does in this movie. So I don't know what happened to him. Yeah. It's like he took a 30-year jump forward overnight and then just stopped aging for the next 40 years. It's true. Yeah, you're right, because I, I was thinking, you know, actually, in some ways, I thought in this movie, he almost looks older than he did in, in right. the Force Awakens. <laughs> yes. So maybe he's Benjamin Button or something. He's going backwards. Yeah, yeah he just took a massive jump forward. <laughs> and decided to start de-aging from that out. Yeah, but man, he's he's so good in this film. And, he, and it's not that he says that much or does that much, but there's such a gravity to him in this movie. And, and you can just tell he's tortured by something in the film. And for for lack of a better like example of a person he reminds me of, um, it, there, there seems like such um, a centeredness about who he is as a priest, even though he's... Um, he doesn't want to go up against these things he has to go up and against, but he, he must. And he reminds me of uh, almost like people that I've read in, in Catholic traditions like Thomas Merton or Henri Nouwen or people like that. When I read their writings, just somebody that strikes me as someone who is is so wise and has seen so many things and is so discerning. And I feel like somehow in the film with him, even the few lines that he has – um, I mean, it's it's almost like to use the Star Wars analogy again. He's he's like the Jedi. He's almost the Obi Wan of the priest world, <laughs> right? Know, in this film, and and he adds so much. So we see him at the beginning, and then he kind of disappears, and we kind of forget about him really um, in the movie. And so as the movie, yeah, until he until he shows up with that iconic shot, yeah, uh, with the the the, the lamplight, and it's just such a everybody knows that from the poster, but it's such a great shot one of the classics of, of all time exactly so it's 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 quite quite a thing well getting into the the plot a little bit and we'll just keep moving along with it and, and have a conversation as we uh move through the plot tonight uh the the movie moves into georgetown and there's an actress there who is uh we're we're supposed to take it from the film that she's a pretty famous actress people are asking for her autograph a lot her name is chris mcneil and she's living on location with her preteen daughter reagan 
and she has just wrapped the final scene of a film about student activism. And and by the way, watching this film that they're filming, uh, I think, man, this doesn't look like a very good movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it looks, that... <laughs> looks like a really bad, like, made-for-TV movie. About, and just the line she delivers, it looks like, oh, man, this looks like a movie I would not want to watch inside of a very good movie. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. I mean, you, you never want to be convinced that you're watching the wrong movie. Right. <laughs> that's true. That's very Like, that's true. a problem with the Star Wars prequels. They keep, you know, doing things that reference the originals, and you just start to think, why am I not just watching the originals? Right, exactly. So um, when they're in, she comes home from a day at the shoot, and, and she's coming to see Reagan, and Reagan has been playing with this Ouija board. And, and again, it can be open to interpretation whether this Ouija board was the way that Reagan invited the de- demon into her, or if this is just a way that the demon that is attacking her is manifesting itself. I think it's more the latter after reading the book and then watching the movie again. Um, but she's been playing with this Ouija board, and she says that she has this imaginary friend named Captain Howdy, uh, which is a great name for, like, Captain Howdy. It almost sounds like a a kid's show, like Howdy Doody or something like that, mixed with Captain Kangaroo. So we almost get the feeling that this character that, you know, this imaginary friend is not something to be threatening in any way. If we didn't know the movie was The Exorcist and we didn't know that it had... Um, this fearful horror element about it, we might just think, oh, that's nice. She has an imaginary friend named Captain Howdy. And I think that that is sort of the, uh, sort of what her, her mother is thinking too. I think she's kind of thinking the same thing the audience is at this point. Uh, oh, isn't that cute? She has this, you know, um, imaginary friend that's just harmless you know right Um, so we have we have captain howdy but reagan begins acting strangely and she's making mysterious noises there's stealing that's happening um she starts using obscene language uh more and more and that's one of the the more shocking elements of the film is that this sweet girl um is suddenly using i mean she's swearing like a sailor you know big time at certain points and um, and that actually comes across uh, when they're visiting a doctor, and, and the mother doesn't realize that Reagan has been talking this way, but she just swears a blue streak at the doctor, basically, <laughs> that's been examining right. her. And um, and she's saying, what what do you mean? What kind of language? And, and he's, he tells her that her, her language is – she's – I forget how he says it, but she's very uh, she's very practiced in the art of profanity. Let's put it that way. Yes. So, and the mother is just shocked by this. She's still almost thinking of her daughter as being this innocent person. Um, and there's this part at a dinner party, and and it's in the book and the movie both. And Chris is, host, Chris is hosting this party with multiple people. There's uh, Hollywood movie people. There's a fight that breaks out at one point between a drunk guy and somebody else, and and um, and Reagan comes downstairs and tells one of the guests, who's an astronaut, uh, he says to her, you're going to die up there, yeah. <laughs> which, which, yes. which has got to be a great thing to tell an astronaut, you know? <laughs> right. And then she proceeds it's what to... what everyone wants to hear before they head into space. Exactly. And then, as always happens at a good dinner party, is she urinates all over the floor in front of all the guests. And there's, right. there's the most... Um, awkward like minute of pause when nobody knows what to say when she has done this and uh, Reagan also 
just some other things that happen with her that is becoming more and more mysterious. Um, the, her bed begins to shake violently. Her mother thinks that she's doing it, but at one point her mother comes in and sees the bed itself is actually shaking. And um, so, again, she consults um, physicians. She finds that there's nothing really medically wrong with her daughter. And um, one night... Actually, the, the, the medical scenes part you know the, i talked about the mythology of people fainting or whatever in the movie that's actually the scene people faint at is the medical one where they're drawing blood or something and it, it briefly gushes on the screen oh, right. and it's it's not any of the actual horror stuff it's just people who can't stand the sight of blood <laughs> <laughs> that's historically where the scene people have the hardest time with mm. uh so no demonic possession pea soup whatever we can handle those but uh you know a little medical procedure uh, blood being drawn. Nope, can't can't deal with that. Can't stomach it. We've exactly. All, we've all got our limit. <laughs> yes. Well, um, well, when the story really starts to get uh, creepy, is the one of the people who was drunk at the party. Um, his name was Burke Dennings, and he's sort of a, a guy that the mother is sort of seeing um, socially and dating, but not in a super serious way. Uh, but one night when Chris is out, Burke is uh, babysitting Reagan. And when Chris comes home, uh, she finds out that he has died falling out the window. They think that he's just kind of flaked out and gotten drunk and, and left. And in actuality, what has happened is he's had an accident and fallen out the window. They assume it's heavy drinking, but as the film goes on, we start to find out maybe maybe he wasn't just drunk and fell out the window um, there's an investigator that keeps asking questions and we're finding out it would be almost impossible for him to fall at the angle he fell out and for right. the way he did to kill him um, it's it's pretty certain that it was murder that somebody killed him and so that's where the movie we go from this innocent sounding Captain Howdy thing and thinking oh Reagan's just got a few medical problems to something is really wrong um, there's furniture moving big furniture there's bed shaking um, there's possible murder taking place on site so something really strange is happening in this place in this house and the interesting thing too is that doctors just keep coming up with oh i'm sure it's a i'm sure it's a medical explanation and they're very hesitant at this point to even refer her to a psychologist i mean the movie keeps going on and they keep being like uh let's not do that yet let's keep checking this we want to make sure we have a medical explanation and i think that's very interesting because um, part of this film is, is sort of a contrast between the Western idea of there is no mystery. Everything can be solved with silence, or science rather, not silence, and sort of a more ancient idea that there is mystery involved that is beyond what science is able to take in. And so we have all these doctors, whether it be the medical doctors that are, are working to run different tests or whether it be the psychologists, they all are coming up short with a scientific reason for these things to happen. Um, so anyway, any any thoughts on that before we, we move on? Yeah, it, it is. And I think that's where the movie kind of takes you by surprise a little bit is that it's doing all of these different tests and it's going through all of this and it almost doesn't feel like a horror movie during that part mm -hmm. it almost feels like you know you're on what er or one of these other medical shows and all the while the horror is slowly mounting and so then when they finally say okay this is not 
just a medical issue, uh, things have ramped up and it almost takes you by surprise. It, it kind of, it's really well done the way that it, it just, they just kind of sneak that in there. Hmm. And yeah, it, it really is. You're right. I hadn't actually thought of it in that way of like a medical procedural, and, and maybe it's because I know too much about the film. But you're right. I think if this was well, yeah, I mean, it's time, a movie called The Exorcist. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> kind of figure there's a demon involved yeah, somewhere. Exactly. But if you'd never seen it before, I mean, it does have that sort of feel. You're you're right in the way they're doing it. So um, the, the doctors actually think that Reagan only believes she's possessed, but that she's not. <laughs> That she's not really, and I just, right. They recommend the priest as just a psych, psychological deal, right? Which is so funny to me because that seems like such a modern like take on spirituality. Is like, oh, there might be a god, but you only you only think there's a god, or you only right. think that there is whatever. So it's it's just funny to me in that context. So. Um, they recommend that the exorcism be performed, but only as sort of an exercise to help Reagan think that she's had an exorcism performed on her. Uh, I don't think any of the medical people, the, the psychologist or anyone, actually think that she is possessed uh, until th there are things that happen that are just absolutely beyond their control and they cannot stop it in any way. There's actually this one gruesome scene in the book and the movie where a psychologist is evaluating Reagan and to I don't want to be indelicate, but like she she grabs his man parts and squeezes so hard, and it's it's terrible to watch in the film, but in the book he gets into some like really strong description, and as a man you're just going oh my word just <laughs> like just kill me now I don't want to be I mean it's just so um, for lack of a better word crushing <laughs> yes in that and and that's where you really start to see that this this innocent girl is filled with something beyond this innocent girl that she's doing things that are are just absolutely evil and beyond her control uh so at some point we finally meet up um with father Karras and and father Karras uh is is dealing with many things it, it brings out a lot in the book that he's dealing with um the struggle of of having lost his mother um and the struggle of, in the film especially, I think it emphasizes a little more that he has a lot of guilt about um, not being able to put her in a a very nice care facility before she dies. He, he can't really take care of her at home anymore, and yet he can't afford better care than just sort of, you know, the cheapest that's around out there. And so he is, is just riddled with guilt. And in the midst of that, and we especially see this in the book, and that's why I recommend people read the book and not just the film if they want to see this a little deeper. He is absolutely uh, grieved in his spirit because he's feels like he has lost his faith. And there are some uh, beautiful and very poetic ways that the book talks about him leading a mass and he's talking about words that used to give him such comfort and joy, and it was such a pleasure for him to be able to stand before God in the Mass. And it talks about him actually feeling the nearness of Christ as he was presenting Christ in the meal. And now every time he does it, it's a pain, and it's a, it is a struggle and a hurt to his soul because... He's not experiencing God in that anymore, and and, right. and he is just desperate, and, and especially in the book, I think even more so than the movie, we see the journey of this person who is so desperate and so longing for God that 
I mean, the the Psalms come to mind of, you know, out of the depths, Lord, hear my cry, you know, and, uh, you know, where are you, Lord, things like that. So he, he is in a, a spot where we would say uh, in a crisis of faith for sure. Um, but it makes very clear both in, especially in the book, I think also in the movie, but really in the book, it makes very clear that he is a sincere man of faith. And, and even though he is also a man of science, and he is a psychologist himself, um, he he truly has been someone that um, has sought after God, has had real, um, true experiences with God in his past, and it is it is really a... a um, for, it's it's anguish for his soul that he's not experiencing God the way he once did in his life. So anyway, you're you're my good Catholic friend. So do you have anything to add about Father Karras as we introduce him to the conversation here? Well, I think that, and again, if there's stuff in the book, I haven't read it recently enough to pull that in. But I think he, in a sense, he's really presented as kind of the prototypical uh, modernist priest who yes, has faith, but doesn't quite know what to do with all of the uh, deeper mysteries of the church that don't quite fit into uh, his modernist uh, paradigm, uh, his way of thinking about things. And I think that in many ways, even though you know Reagan gets a lot of talk, Father Mary gets a lot of talk, his journey might be the central one of the piece because the events of this and then later his interaction with Father Marin are essentially a wrecking ball that goes through this kind of purely modernist mm-hmm. outlook on faith. Yeah. And, you know, you think about when this came out, um, early 70s, the church is, is really coming out of Vatican II, and, and I'm not sure when the book was written. Um, do you know that by any uh, chance? I, I, up here? I want to say it was like, right, I'm not not much longer than before than the movie was. I want to say maybe less than five years. Uh, the movie, oh, yeah, 1971. Seven, yeah, okay, yeah. So Vatican II has been over uh, for about four or five years at this point, and what's happening is a lot of these implementations are coming into play now in parishes, and there is quite a split that occurs within Catholicism at this time, not schismatic, of course, but uh, just within different interpretations. And a split that continues to today as far as what exactly does Vatican II mean? Is Vatican II a chance for us to kind of take that breath of fresh air to invite God in in a fresh way, or is it really an embracement of modernism, which is something the Church had consistently uh, stood against, and uh, I can tell you from what I know about William Peter Blatty that he would very much come down on the former, the more conservative side, that would say, no, uh, Vatican II is not about just letting in modernism. It isn't about just kind of shoveling our embarrassments, in, in, such as exorcism, into the corner, but that those are still very real things that we have to uh, deal with. Um, from a Catholic perspective, it's kind of interesting, because one of the recommendations I wanted to make during this episode was for a book by Father Gabriel Amorth, who died just this last year, but he was the Vatican's chief exorcist, Mm. and he has a book called A Real Exorcist Tells His Story, which is fascinating beyond belief, and and really will stretch you even more than this movie does, and he's a big fan of, of 
The Exorcist as well. He criticized it in terms of its accuracy as being too, you know, the special effects go beyond anything he'd ever experienced, but the experience of the demonic, he said, is spot on in terms of the movie. And within the church, there are a number of people who, who treated him, especially during the later years of his life, as an embarrassment. Hmm. Uh, and just kind of wanted to shove him aside. We don't want to talk about things like exorcism. Uh, we don't want to talk about, we don't want to have somebody like that around who, you know, feels too medieval for us. And I think a big part of the argument William Peter Blatty is making is that, A, number one, that's not what Vatican II was about. And B, number two, you might not want those things around, uh, but some of those things are around for a reason. They aren't just medieval anomalies that happen to have just lingered on a little too long. But no, the devil is real, demons are real, and dealing with them is part of the church's business. Well, that's very interesting. I hadn't I hadn't put together like the timing of Vatican II and the timing of this writing, but it makes the it makes the story even more brilliant in in those two uh, sort of ways of which way are we going to go, you know, as a church. That's, I'm really glad you brought that up. I had not thought of that um, in the context of this. So, but but I do think Karis, especially in the book, is treated much more sympathetically and much more, um, being that at one time he was one that really had a deep spirituality to him and ha- and has come to a point where he is desperately seeking God again, but he's leaning more on the science of things and and almost being more stoic about things um, than he once was. But he's racked with guilt, and that's a very important part about this story. He's racked with guilt about not only his lack of, of faith right now, but his lack of being able to care for his mother, who is recently deceased, in the way that he wanted to. And so she continually haunts him in dreams, and, and the demon later on brings her up to him to make him start to doubt again that he's has any kind of worth or can be used by God. So um, he's he's a very interesting character and, and definitely is is the main uh, character of, of the book. And I, I enjoyed reading his, his story quite a lot. Uh, but there are a variety of things that happen um, in the movie and in the book. And, and the book gets really graphic and descriptive in different places. And there's a lot we see in the film, uh, but it's it's even more gruesome in the book just because you can go into detail and see a little bit more. And there's scenes like, you know, the scenes where um, when Karis is evaluating her and, and doing a tape recording of Reagan to try to figure out if she is indeed, you know, possessed by a demon or if she just has some psychological problems because even he is doubting that she's really possessed because he doesn't think that kind of thing happens anymore. Right. And, and there's a point, um, I think everybody associates the Exorcist movie with the green vomit scene. Right. <laughs> she vomits. It's the gross out moment. Right, of, the of gross the out moment. She vomits on him but in the book i don't think they emphasize it as much in the the film but she actually has like massive diarrhea at the same time you know too like in the midst of the scene and it is so unbelievably gross like it is just um you just go like oh man i don't want to watch this anymore like to me that would have been the gross out movie where you you leave the the theater people can't take the pea soup um yes coming at him but it's but I, i think that they're really emphasizing this is just um this isn't just a small deal this is this is trying to this is not just a movie trying to gross us out um this is evil trying to make us see how disgusting you know making us feel disgusted and and disgusting and making us feel dirty 
uh, yes. in the midst of it's an assault on our morals. It's an assault on everything that we think makes us clean and makes us um, even intelligent and scientific. And it's sort of like the demon is taunting all of that and just trying to to make you feel completely worthless and make you feel like you have no power whatsoever over them. So, um, so eventually, um, let's let's just flash forward a little bit because there's a lot that happens with the demon. But I I do want to get to when the other the other priest, uh, Father Marin, joins Father Karras. So you already set up the scene a little bit with that, but if we fast forward, can you can you one more time just tell about this sort of iconic scene in a movie where in the movie where Father Marin shows up once again once we discover that this is an exorcist uh, a, a demon possession and there is an exorcism that needs to take place. Right, Father Karras calls in the big guns, right. and it, in a sense, it really is appropriate to skip over a lot of that middle ground uh, because Father Marin shows up and by this time everyone else is freaked out including Father Karras mm -hmm. and you know we have that iconic scene where he gets out of the car and there's smoke coming up from the grates or steam coming up from the grates and the lamplight is there you know and he looks up at the window where Reagan is and, and it, it, you look at any poster for the movie you'll find it and then this is my favorite moment in the film, is when he goes inside and Father Karras comes up to him and says, you want to know the, let me tell you the history of the case, or do you want to know the history of the case, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he says, why? Right. <laughs> it's so good, because then he says, the devil is a liar, don't believe anything he says. And it's just, it's such a great moment, because he's essentially saying, you're confusing the issue. You can throw in all of that other stuff you want. Uh, you can throw in all the psychology, all the physical stuff, but at the end of the day, this is good versus evil. Right. And he comes through it so well in that moment, and I just love that. It, it is hands down my favorite moment in the film. It, it is. It's it's really great. And I, as we were talking about before we started the recording tonight, um, it's reminiscent to me of of in the Lord of the Rings, it, it would actually be the the final book, uh, Return of the King, where Frodo comes back and the Shire uh, has been industrialized and taken over by Sauron, and um, and he's uh, excuse me, Frodo for some reason I just said his name then I forgot it all of a sudden Frodo um, actually has to tell his fellow hobbits in the community to stop listening to the voice of evil just like this. Don't right. listen to him. And actually says in the book, he has no power except the power of his voice. And this yes. is one thing that Father Marin keeps emphasizing to the other priest, Karis. Uh, you have to stop listening to what the demon is saying to you. This will be your undoing. You know, is this, this is what he's trying to do. Um, so you just absolutely cannot listen. And there are some really great things in the book, some lines of dialogue that take place in the exorcism, but there are some things extra in the film that happen too that don't happen in the book, or at least they aren't said in exactly the same way, and I think they're they're all the more powerful for it. Um, but we have a, a point when, when both priests together 
come together and um, they both witness Reagan perform a series of bizarre and vulgar acts and uh, they confine her to her bedroom and then they attempt to exercise the demon but the demon is is very stubborn and Karis especially the the priest who's sort of a man of faith and a man of science um, begins to show weakness more and at some point he's actually dismissed by Marin and and Marin is yes. asking him throughout because it's becoming so hard um, of a task to drive this demon out um, he actually asks him at some point you know are you tired and, and let's go let's go take a break and and this is maybe my favorite scene of the movie when they're actually sitting and resting in between and it's it's getting close to the end of the film and uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the book, just just kind of set up the scene. It's very close in the film as to what the conversation is in the book, but this is actually from the book, The Exorcist. Um, they're talking in very hushed tones. Um, by the way, they're they're kind of sitting in the hallway and they're being quiet, and they're talking about how you know there's only one demon in here uh, because Marin has already told Karis he's encountered this demon before. And this is a, a very strong, very powerful demon, and he'll make you think he's the devil himself, but he's not. And and you need to know, um, I've dealt with him before, you know. And so, right. And so Karis is, and 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 like you said, you know, he's been around, he's done some things. So the part I want to read here, Karis is asking Father Marin. Um, about what is the purpose of this possession. I think that's one of the great mysteries of the movie. Why this little girl? You know, why um, this... Actually, we find out in the beginning she's a very sweet girl. It's not like she's out, you know, sacrificing cats in the backyard or something. Right. She's, she's just this... Um, she's just a typical girl, and she's a, a very, very sweet young girl. She doesn't seem like there would be anything at all that would make, you know, her inviting demons in. So... I will start reading now. Um, Karis is asking, so what would be the purpose of possession? What's the point? And uh, Marin's reply is, who can know? Who can really hope to know? And yet I think the demon's target is not the possessed. It is us, the observers, every person in this house. And I think, I think the point is to make us despair. To reject our own humanity, Damien. To see ourselves as ultimately bestial, vile, putrescent, without dignity, ugly, unworthy. And there lies the heart of it, perhaps in unworthiness. For I think belief in God is not a matter of reason at all. I think it finally is a matter of love, of accepting the possibility that God could ever love us. Marin paused then continued more slowly and with an air of introspection. Again, who really knows? But it is clear, at least to me, that the demon knows where to strike. Oh yes, he knows. Long ago I despaired of ever loving my neighbor. Certain people repelled me. And so how could I love them, I thought. It tormented me, Damien. It led me to despair of myself, and from that very soon to despair of my God, my faith was shattered. Surprised, Karis turned and looked at Marin with interest. And what happened, he asked. Ah, well, at last I realized that God would never ask of me that which I know to be psychologically impossible, that the love which he asked was in my will and not meant to be felt as emotion. No, not at all. He was asking that I act with love, that I do unto others and that I should do it unto those who repelled me. 
I believe, was a greater act of love than any other. Marin lowered his head and spoke even more softly. I know that all of, the, all of this must seem very obvious to you, Damien, I know, but at the time I could not see it. Strange blindness. How many husbands and wives, Marin uttered sadly, must believe that they have fallen out of love because their hearts no longer race at the sight of their beloveds. Ah, dear God, he shook his head, and then he nodded. There it lies, I think, Damien, possession, not in wars as some tend to believe, not so much, and very rarely in extraordinary interventions such as here, this girl, this poor child. No, I tend to see possession most often in the little things, Damien, in the senseless, petty spites and misunderstandings, the cruel and cutting word that leaps unbidden to the tongue between friends, between lovers, between husbands and wives, enough of these, and we have no need of Satan to manage our wars. These we manage for ourselves, for ourselves. So, I'll stop reading now, but, man, I just, I love that part of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, really good. And I think, to me, I feel like that's the point of the book, even. Um, it, it's sort of all in what Father Marin is saying to Karis at this point. Um, that we are people who are deeply loved by God, and it's not because of a matter of our will, and it's not because of a matter of our worthiness. It is a matter of how how deep His love is that makes us right. lovable. You know, <laughs> and, and it, it really, you know, in a sense, it, it like you said, it's the thesis of the movie, and both in what you're saying, and then also in that I love how Father Karras starts out asking, well. What's the reason for this? And Father Marin almost kind of turns that on its head. And it, it, his message back is essentially, the point here isn't to look for a reason. It's to look for what God is doing through this. Right. And we can speculate about the reason, but you're missing the point if that's what you're after. Yeah. Yeah, really, really just powerful. Um, and, I, and I love how he, again... He starts describing love as being not something that we feel, but something that we do. It's a verb. As as we know from Scripture, love is something that is something that we do unto others, whether we feel like it or not. And I think that sort of uh, sums up what the priest is doing in this house with this demon-possessed girl, too. Um, and in a sense, I think that, that Marin is here showing love to this young girl he's never met, even though, and we especially see it in the film, he is an old man and this will probably kill him because of the effort it's taking to do that. Um, he could very well have, and they even make a point in the film of saying when the priests are deciding what other priests to send with um, uh, Father... Um, well, I'm tired tonight. It's not. It's it's Marin and Karis, the priest yes. in with Father Karis. Yep. Yep. Um, they actually make a point of saying, Marin, is he still alive? <laughs> like, yes. Like, he's so old, he's got to be dead from all the, the basically the, the driving out of demons he's been doing his whole life. And they even hesitate to send him. But I think that Marin, when he's talking about, you know, uh, showing love here, I think that that is in a sense what he's doing in this house at all is because... He doesn't want to be there. It's clear he doesn't want to be there. It's clear that he knows how weak he is and how frail he is as he comes against this demon. Um, but he's there for the sake of this young girl who he's never met before, who he has uh, really no reason to be there relationally or in any other way. But he's doing something that is an action verb, the, the right. action of love and going in to free her from this thing that has taken her so captive. 
and uh, and let's let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff in the movie that they're actually saying because there is some powerful um you know it's not like prayer meeting like we would say that you know the pentecostals have <laughs> their prayer meeting but in yeah. a sense it almost is like this prayer meeting that's going on in that room where they're praying over um over this over Reagan who's possessed by this demon and i love father marin um, when he's, I mean, he's basically telling the demon to shut up, you know, <laughs> he's, yes. he's, he walks in and just commands the place and, and, oh yeah, yeah. He, he takes charge and it's spectacular. Yeah. And, and the demon knows who he is. And it's almost this idea of, you know, if you think of the book of Acts, um, where the, the sons of Sceva or Skeva or however you say it, um, they're, they are chased out of, uh, the temple, seven of them by this one demon because they're going in and to cast out a demon and they're saying, in the name of Jesus that Paul talks about, come out. <laughs> you know? Right. And, and the demon says to him, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> you know? Yes. And it's, it's almost a humorous, but it's also kind of a scary story when you read about it. And I think of Marin walking in, um, to this place and it's almost like you could this demon would be like jesus i know paul i know well i know Marin too right <laughs> you know he Marin knows jesus and he's here to do some some work against me and and the demon reacts against him like it's 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 kind of scary the way that you're watching reagan react to when when uh when the demon knows when real power has walked in the room and and Marin is so interesting to me because every time he talks he's not talking on behalf of Marin he's talking on behalf of the god who has created them and sent them there and um and he says at one point I'm I'm going to get the paraphrase wrong I know but he's yelling at the demon and he's telling the demon to be quiet and he says don't Something about don't ignore my words because you know me to be a sinner. I yes, am, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. it's one of the great lines in the movie. Do you, it's, do you remember? I, I don't. It's, I, I don't have no word for word, but it's essentially that that we're sinners, but don't think that gets you off off the hook. We're here in the name of Christ, and it, it's just amazing yeah it's a it's a spectacular part of the film and it but it's something like that he's yelling at him and saying you know don't ignore my words because you know me to be a sinner i am here um speaking the words of the one who created you and this entire world you know and and we get a sense in that too because you never think about like oh yeah that's right God made these demons too that went bad, you know. Right. Like, like I'm I'm here representing the one who made you, even pal. So you know, watch out because these words are are stronger than me that are coming at you today. And I just I love it. I love anytime Marin is in that film, and uh, it's it's weird to say I get this sort of. Um, energized faith watching his faith at work in a movie like the exorcist because so many people just see it as nothing but a horror film but to me boy it's it's a profound faith film it really is and the more i watch him and there's one point where karis is is listening to the demon's words against him and the demon keeps convincing karis that he's done wrong and keeps talking to him about his mother and and, you know, you're such a bad boy for leaving me in the place where you left me. Why did you do it? And Marin has to tell Karis, you know, get out. And and basically that's where we are at, at towards the end of the movie. Um, there is a powerful spot in the film where Marin comes in and just kneels down at the bed. It's very quiet. It's very... Um, it's very poised. Uh, he has just taken what I assume was heart medication um, or something like that in the other room. His hands are shaking. He's tired. 
and um, to me, it's it's just it's a beautiful moment in the film. He walks in, and where everyone has been so scared of this demon, um, he kneels down very quietly. I don't know if you remember that part of the film. But yes, it's this very, yeah, it's very good, very quiet, very introspective. There's not fear there. It's just a matter of he's tired, and he just goes back to doing the work. He slowly opens his prayer book, and he begins to pray again. And his voice is weak, and he's tired, um, but it's he is so persistent. And that's the last time we see him alive in the film, um, because he's apparently had a heart attack whenever we see Father Karras come back in. But anyway, I've been talking a lot. And give me some... Well, I, here, I have, I, have a, I have that quote for you, actually. Oh, good. Um, so he says, do not despise my command because you know me to be a sinner. It's God himself who commands you, the majestic Christ who commands you, God the Father commands you, God the Son commands you, God the Holy Spirit commands you, the mystery of the cross commands you, the blood of the martyrs commands you. It's just incredible. It, yeah. It's one of the great moments in film. It really is. And and I, I keep thinking I want to memorize that in case I ever come across somebody that has a demon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah no it's it's i mean it really is it's a shame that um it it hasn't gotten more widespread acclaim among christians and and i get it because i get that and i respect and even agree with to a large extent the attitude of we don't want to mess around with stuff like this um that's real and that we should take seriously and I would say, yeah, and the William Peter Blatty and William Friedkin would agree with you. They, they're they not messing around with it either. They're taking it seriously, and they made a great film. Um, you know, it's a minor miracle that somebody actually made a movie, or Hollywood made a movie, uh, where Catholic priests are portrayed in a positive light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when has that ever happened again? Yeah. Never? Especially, <laughs> especially recently with yeah. like Spotlight and those different films that right. are about scandal. It's really it's right. refreshing to see a, an actual faith film about men of faith. Yeah. And, uh, and just I love the moment at the end when, when Reagan comes up and you know says thank you to Father Karras. And mm. uh, really powerful. And, and that's really, you know, the other thing I was going to mention too is there's a whole subtext in the movie too. Uh, about the dissolution of the family and you know that we don't know ever find out what happened with the father um as far as i can remember anyway right. uh with reagan's father and really you know the the movie is about this family that is looking for a father both in the yeah. uh familial and religious sense and yeah. and that's one of the powerful subtexts of the film too yeah definitely well we get the sense at least in the book that the father has left them and has found somebody else and and also that he's supposed to come visit her during the film or during the story and he doesn't come and and so there's a place in the movie where the mother's actually chewing him out on the phone for not coming and being the father that he should be you know <laughs> like you're, you're leaving reagan on her birthday and and she really wanted to see you and and you've not taken the time she's she's really letting him have it but um but actually it wasn't you you said that she hugged father Karras, but she actually doesn't because he dies it's yeah the other. It, it's actually father dyer um, who is a friend of Karras through the movie um but anyway i guess we should go ahead and, and give the spoiler the movie's been out long enough now um of what happens 
uh, Karis comes running back in the room and he sees that Father Marin has has died and uh, obviously must have been a heart attack or something like that. We don't really know exactly what caused it, uh, but he tries to revive him and he can't and he's just had enough and he wrestles Reagan to the floor and he starts yelling at the demon saying, take me, take me, you know. And again, I think we see this as... Uh, love enacted not love felt um even though he's overcome with emotion i can't imagine many of us that would want to say on regard of on behalf of someone else um for the sake of her demon come into me <laughs> you know? yes that would be the last thing on my mind i would think i would just want to be like get away but it seems like he's reached a point where he's so desperate to see her freed of this um he's so desperate to see the pain in that it's caused it's it's killed this this wonderful priest that has has been so powerful um it has done so much harm to this family and it's done so much harm to him personally i think that the, he's willing to do anything at this point. And so he tells Pazuzu to to come out and come into him. And the demon does that, and it's it's another chilling moment in the film because you can see his face transform suddenly that looks almost like what Reagan's did when the demon was in her. Right. And, and the demon keeps saying, when they ask what the demon wants, they keep asking, what do you want? And the demon keeps saying, to kill her. And and keeps making her heart race, her heartbeat is getting faster to the point she's going to die if she doesn't get some relief medically soon. And uh, Father Karras's will is stronger. When he's possessed with the demon, you see him fight the urge to kill Reagan whenever the demon is in his body and in in a an effort of will to not do that he leaps out the window committing suicide and he has this fall down these steps it seems like it takes three and a half minutes it's like right it's, there are so many stairs that he goes down it's almost like is this ever gonna yeah, end? The, those things are a, a hazard i mean you're getting <laughs> a little are. ice storm going and, and it's game over <laughs> i didn't remember it until this time but i thought holy cow this scene of him falling is going on like he has to be dead at the bottom there's no right way. yeah you would just want to avoid those steps from about november to march i think <laughs> well how you would even climb up them there were so many it's just right about. yeah you, you'd be out of breath even yeah. good by the time you get to the top. so anyway well all joking aside that was uh, father Karras's act of sacrifice at the end and then we see father dyer at the end of the film coming up to to offer him last rites as he's laying there on the ground and you get this sense that that finally Karis is free, Reagan is free, everyone is free, but it was it was a true sacrifice that was taking place on this. And so then as you referred to, Reagan does hug Father Dyer at the end and says thank you. And yes. um and there's a whole other storyline about a detective we probably won't get into tonight, but he's kind of an interesting character in the movie and the book as well. But um but all that is to say I, I actually came away from uh, this exorcist book people will, will laugh at me and think i've weird but for two weeks now with my uh, music team here at church um i've been leading devotions using passages of the exorcist before like after practice and before we lead worship on sunday morning because and it's usually something that father Marin has said um, right so it's it's kind of funny but i've been using the exorcist devotionally um with my praise team and and to, well maybe that's your next book project yeah maybe that's <laughs> what it'll be <laughs> finding god in the exorcist the book yes um and and there's a lot there that could be mined out 
about. But I think if if people can actually approach the story and and just allow it to speak to them, um, I don't want to say that I put this movie on the same level as like a Terrence Malick film, um, but there is some similarity in the sense that the way that Malick makes you take your time with the movie and makes you think about what it is you're seeing and and draws you in i feel like the exorcist i talked about the slow pace of the film that kind of draws you in and keeps doing it it's obviously not anywhere close to a terrence malick film but it almost does have some sacramental elements to it in that way i feel like because i i don't know how else to to talk about a malick film unless i say it's a sacramental film you know in some way and I feel like because of the strong Catholic overtones and because of the strong prayers that we find in this film, the strong theme of love and sacrifice, and there is a lot of uh, of Christ imagery in this film, I almost feel like there's a lot of sacramental element to this film as well. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think, um, you know, Malik makes you feel like you're inside the, the sacrament. Yeah. And this is maybe, you know, still a little more external taking place in front of you. So it's a different feel. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, well, do you have any um, thoughts as we start to shut down this conversation tonight that maybe have been really kind of laying on your mind as you're thinking about The Exorcist and maybe what we can take from it on um, on, on any level, really? I mean, you, you always have some great perspectives, both literarily and spiritually and philosophically, and I'd, I'd just be open for anything that you've been kind of mauling over as you've thought about this film and this book again. Well, you know, I think we got most of it out. I, I think um, it really is one that if, you know, you haven't seen it in a long time or if you've seen it and only watched it as a horror movie, uh, it, it bears going back to for that reason. Uh, and to me, I, I always go back to what William Friedkin, who again is a, an agnostic, said about it, which is that you had to approach this film as a believer. Uh, and I think that's very true. You you know approach this film not for the thrill of it. Um, well, you know it's Halloween. You got to watch some good horror movies or whatnot. But uh, approach it with that deeper perspective, and I, I think you can get a lot out of it. Uh, it just simply is an extraordinary work. And by the way, speaking of William Friedkin, um, he, he says that very recently, this was uh, the latest I found was May, and I, I assume this is true. He says that uh, he was invited uh, by the Catholic Church to film a real exorcism. Recently. Yes, I saw that. And now he, he says that the Vatican invited him and he was corrected on that that the vatican does not send out invitations like that but but, um that was his understanding of the catholic church inviting him to be a part of one of these so i would be interested to see what's going to come of that because i don't think that anyone has ever really been invited to come and, and film and you know participate in a real exorcism before um but i'm i'm trying to see if i can um Let's see. I've, I've got my phone out here. I'm looking for his quote. He says, "He says I was invited by the Vatican exorcist to shoot and video an actual exorcism, uh, which few people have ever seen and which nobody has ever photographed." He said. Uh, Friedkin noted how similar the ritual was to that depicted in his film. He says, uh, "I was pretty astonished by that. I don't think I will ever be the same having seen this astonishing thing." 
Um, so I'm not talking about some cult. I am talking about an exorcism by the Catholic Church in Rome. Um, so, so that would be interesting to see, you know, why they why they asked him. I guess it's solely because of his work on the exorcism. They found maybe he would have some merit to being there for that. But I haven't heard anything beyond just that one story I read. Yeah, I, I imagine there was less pea soup and levitation involved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, real quick, can you say one more time what the name of that book was about the account of a real exorcist? I've forgotten what the name was, and I wanted to write it down. Yeah, so it's by Father Gabriel Amorth, A-M-O-R-T-H, and it's called A Real Exorcist Tells His Story. Right. Uh, and he wrote a second one um, that I haven't read, but... You know, suffice to say, he really wrote it not so much as look at all the cool stuff I've been through, but kind of as a smack upside the head to the modern world, especially modern Christians, that, hey, this stuff is real. Uh, You do well to take it a little more seriously than you do. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of like in the book uh and the movie of this and what happened with them because we've already talked about how neither of us have seen the sequels but we're pretty sure there's not a lot to the sequels that we might want to to take right. from anyway um this is a completely different subject matter but not too long ago about a year ago um i had an author named david morell on my podcast and david morell um, wrote the book First Blood, which became, you know, the movie First Blood, which is where it started the whole Rambo franchise. Right. And the interesting thing about books like this or books like First Blood is they came out around the same time, but First Blood was actually a book that was a almost this case study of what happens to soldiers when they come back from war and the way that PTSD affects them. And so the, the book, when you read that one... Um, it's really hard to distinguish who the hero is and who the villain is. As a matter of fact, a lot of people, when the book came out, thought that the sheriff in the book First Blood was actually the hero and that the Rambo character was the villain because of the yeah. way the book was written. Um, but as time went on, you know, the movies just became something where, oh, yeah, action, 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 you know, blood and guts, violence, things like that. And to the point that, that Stallone actually called David Morrell recently and apologized to him and said, I'm, huh. I'm sorry. He said, my views have been changing on, on violence and war, and which is really interesting considering like the movies he's been making lately, The Expendables and all that. Right. But he actually apologized to him and said, I feel like we got your character so wrong and took it so many different directions it shouldn't have been. And I feel in a similar way The Exorcist is I was looking for podcasts, I was looking for articles articles online i was looking for all kinds of different sources about this and i wanted somebody that could actually approach it um from the depth of where we're talking about it tonight and all i just kept getting again and again was oh man it's so scary it's so horrific it's just you know blood and guts and gore and and pea soup vomiting (laughs) and i wasn't getting that even though people were saying this was their favorite movie of all time i wasn't feeling like they were getting it you know (laughs) right (laughs) like there's something more to it and and so it's sad to me whenever pieces of literature or, or movies or things like that actually 
turn into that down the road. Almost like your recent podcast that you guys just did talking about, you know, 90% of everything is crap, you know? Yes. Yeah, Sturgeon's <laughs> and, Law. Yeah, Sturgeon's Law, and which, by the way, let me just make a plug for the Sci-Fi Christian podcast that you guys do. It's excellent, as always. I've never missed an episode so far, and uh, so I just want to say if anybody's looking for um, a really great podcast to listen to, you guys need to check out Ben and Matt's podcast, The Sci-Fi Christian. Um, it's really great but uh well we've probably just about exhausted everything i wanted to talk about tonight but this is sort of a fun halloween edition but um my encouragement to everybody out there if you've ever you know wanted to be challenged by a book or a movie i I really encourage you to read the book as well because the book has a lot in it i wouldn't recommend it for younger children um if you're offended by foul language i i wouldn't recommend the book or the movie either one i guess um, I would want to be selective in, in who I would say should read it. But uh, if you're looking for something that will challenge you and, and make you possibly look deeper into some spiritual matters than you have before, um, don't take The Exorcist as just a horror film uh, or as just some way to scare you and, and eat some, you know, uh, leave the movie and go do something else use it as an experience to actually experience something deeper and and i've i've found myself as i've been reflecting on this the last few weeks um i feel like i've been drawn a little bit deeper in my relationship with god because of this and and i uh feel like it can be something that's beneficial to your journey if you allow it and and approach it in that way so so yeah, ben, sure any other thoughts from you uh, no, I think that's about it for me. But thank you for having me on. It's always fun. Well, thank you again, and it's been great to have you, and thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. All right. Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com, follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames, like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames, and keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on Amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the Internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead, strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.